And what we're asking is, how can we find direction in life? So we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. And so far, we've looked at the parable of the rich man, the unjust steward. And then last week, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son. Well, this week, uh, Dwayne's out of town, and he kindly gave me one of the most difficult parables in the whole Bible, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So in just a moment, we're going to look at that. But before we do, I want to share some stats with all of the right brain thinkers in the room. So so here we go. Uh, the average American family makes fifty five thousand dollars a year. And half the world's population, over three billion people, live on less than eight hundred and fifty dollars. It's a big gap. One in two children in the world live in poverty. And over the course of this sermon, 450 children will die from easily preventable diseases. And then finally, in America last year, over 15 percent of the population, including 11 million children, lived below the poverty line. Meanwhile, we threw away 100 billion pounds of food. The, the, the numbers are staggering, aren't they? Poverty is, is pervasive. It's everywhere you look. And especially if you've ever uh, known people who, who have been poor, if you've ever lived in a city, you know what I'm talking about. There's an old Lebanese proverb that says, if you think life is hard, go live in a city. And uh, seven years ago, I was living in downtown Chicago on the Gold Coast. It's the second most uh, expensive urban neighborhood in the United States of America. And I remember living down there, and everywhere you go, there's, there's millionaires and billionaires. You know, there's Oprah Winfrey with her, her downtown condo, and there's uh, a Jerry Springer who lives in a big skyscraper, the Hancock Building. And, and, and then if you go down by the lake, there's a magnificent mile on Michigan Avenue. It's a full mile of uh, upper-end shopping and five-star uh, hotels and, and, and premium uh, restaurants. So money is everywhere you look. But the interesting thing is it's not just money that's everywhere you look. It's also poverty. You see, right in front of these multi-million dollar homes and right in front of these skyscrapers are beggars, are little boys, are moms, are families who brave the cold winters and, and stay there during the sticky summers just trying to get enough to get by, just trying to get enough to survive. And you also see this in the neighborhoods themselves. I remember uh, when I lived there, we used to go down to the south side, which is the business district. And we would go down to the south side because under the freeways, there's a big community of homeless people. There's hundreds of families that live underneath these freeways in the middle of winter. And we go down there and pass out stocks and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I remember just being startled by the contrast of the two different lives that were there. On the other side of town, in the north side, there's a town called Uptown. That's where Al Capone had his headquarters in the, in the 20s. But in the 60s, uh, the government had the smart idea of closing down mental health facilities and dumping thousands of mentally ill patients on the streets of Uptown. And so for the past 40 years, that neighborhood has been reeling from poverty and has never recovered. And to this day, I was just there in January, the Covenant, our denomination, has two or three homeless shelters there that are just packed out every single day of the week. See, this is life in the city. You have the richest and the poorest that live literally within one city block of one another. You have feasting and starving, luxury and poverty right next door. And in my experience, when middle class Christians like me and you experience this kind of up close and personal, we tend to react in different ways. So, for instance, some Christians respond to the gap between the rich and the poor with what I call a government solution, a government solution. They see the injustice. They see um, the pain and the suffering and they wonder how in the world could this be tolerated? And so they advocate a radical social 
overhaul of the structures of our of our uh, economy and our culture. Some people even go as far as full-blown socialism. But the point I want to make, I'm not trying to advocate a political view here, but I don't think the answer is to surrender complete control of caring for the poor to the government. Another solution some people have is the private sector solution, right? And these people are equally uh, caring for the poor, but they argue for the opposite solution. They argue what we need is pure capitalism. We don't have enough free market economic systems in place. The rich multinational corporations are taxed too much. You know, you've heard all these things before. Um, the, the housing regulations and the, the banking regulations are just too strict. We need to start deregulating things. This is the famous trickle-down theory of the 1980s. But regardless of what you think of that theory, the fact is, during the late 80s and early 90s, we saw the biggest disparity develop between the rich and the poor than at any time during American history. So maybe what is needed is for these poor people just to get off their butts and stop being lazy and start working, right? That's what some people say. This is what I call the bootstrap solution. I had a friend in college, and he used to always tell me, you know what, Brandon? The cream rises to the top. He was saying people are poor because it's their fault, because they're criminals, because they're drug addicts, because they don't want to get a job. So his solution was just to tell them to work harder. But, of course, this solution overlooks a few very, very important things. One, it forgets that oftentimes drug use and laziness is more of a result of poverty than a cause of poverty. It's a very important distinction. Also, it overlooks the fact that the majority of Christians in the world are actually poor. Most Christians live on less than $3 a day. They live in the global south, in places like South America, Africa, and even out east. But I think the big problem here for a lot of us, including myself, is oftentimes we just don't want to see poverty. We move to the suburbs. We try to get away from poverty. I remember when I was in seminary about four or five years ago, I worked at a restaurant. At the restaurant I worked at, there was this abandoned car right next door, and there was this lady that lived there. And she was poor. She was homeless. Apparently what happened was she ran away from her family. She had a husband and two boys and hit the streets. And she lived in this car for two years. And occasionally they would come by and they would ask her to come home. But she always refused. And occasionally in the restaurant, we'd actually hear her screaming because she had these mental health problems. I remember seeing her every once in a while. I talked to her and she was always smelly and and shy. And I'm ashamed to admit it, but I never, ever, ever did anything to help her. And sometimes I thought about it, but the fact of the matter is I felt overwhelmed. I felt like it was kind of above my pay grade, like it was too much for me. I had other things to take care of. I was trying to take care of my own family after all. And I think a lot of us feel this way. And what experts call this is compassion fatigue, compassion fatigue. And what that is, it's the gradual lessening of compassion over time. The gradual lessening of compassion over time. If any of you here work in the helping profession, if you're um, a nurse or a social worker, if uh, you do divorce or marriage counseling, if you're a pastor, uh, you know about compassion fatigue. The idea is uh, people see pain so much that eventually they get numb to it. But experts tell us that compassion fatigue actually affects all of us. According to the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, media has caused widespread compassion fatigue in society by saturating newspapers and news shows with often decontextualized images and stories of tragedy and suffering. Listen to this. This has caused the public to become cynical or become resistant to helping people who are suffering. 
So we see it so much. It's on the news. It's in commercials. It's on the news headlines that eventually we just kind of become numb to it. We don't it doesn't affect us anymore. And the question I want to ask today is very, very simple. It's WWJD. What would Jesus do? Or, or better yet, what did Jesus do about poverty in his day? What was his solution? I don't think it was any of these four solutions primarily. I think it was something else entirely. And the good news is Jesus tells us what his solution is in the book of, in the book of Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and following. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke 16, 19. Jesus says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and lived in luxury and ate sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, so Jesus is telling us this parable. And in the parable, there's two men. There's a millionaire and there's a homeless man. And he says this millionaire, this rich man, is dressed in purple every day. And during this culture, purple was, you know, the, the Armani suit of this time. You know, it was... It was you know, dressed to the nines. This guy has a lot of money. He's loaded and he's not afraid to tell the world. So he's wearing a Marmani suits every day. And then Jesus gets a little humorous. Not just that, but he also has fine linen, which literally means that he wore high quality Egyptian underwear. So here Jesus is talking about this guy's Calvin Klein boxer shorts. And he's saying he, gets, he has the most expensive underwear money can buy. And he even wears that. And not only that, but he also feasts sumptuously every day. He's eating top quality filet mignon and prime rib every single day of the week, even on the Sabbath, even on the holy day, even on the day that God said, don't work, give your servants a day off. He works. And the reason for that is very simple. This man's self-indulgent lifestyle is more important to him than the law of God. This man's own needs, his own concerns are more important to him than his relationship with God. What about the other man? The other man is Lazarus. And the interesting thing about Lazarus is he's given a name. I mean, think about it. How many people um, in Jesus' parables are given names? How many could you think of? None, right? There is none. I mean, the, the, the prodigal son, the elder brother, the rich young ruler. I mean, all of these people, none of them are actually given names. But this man apparently is. It's interesting. Let's say you go to a party, and at this party there's a wealthy, educated, good-looking, handsome man. And then there's an undereducated, poor, shabby-looking guy. Who's the person's name that everybody remembers after the party? It's always the rich man. But for some reason, the one person that Jesus mentions by name in the parable is this homeless, disease-ridden, penniless beggar. Lazarus literally means the one God helps. But the interesting thing is when we look at this story, it doesn't look like God helps them at all. In fact, he looks like the one that God forgot about. It looks like the one that slipped through the cracks. Look back at the text. It says that this man was laid at the gate of the rich man. He couldn't walk. He was too ill. His friends actually had to pick him up, carry him to the rich man's gate and drop him down, hoping that maybe the rich man or one of his friends would help him out and would give him some money or would meet some of his medical needs. And not only that, the text says that the dogs were licking him. Of course, dogs in the ancient world weren't like today. You know, there was no lassies or pet dogs or anything like that. Dogs were either uh, scavengers that were on the street, kind of like giant rats, or they were uh, security dogs. And it seems most commentators think that these dogs were actually security dogs. They were hanging out by the gate. They were basically this rich man's home security system, his, his ADT, if you will. 
And it says that the dogs were licking this man, which we know is actually a sign of affection. It means these dogs liked Lazarus. And the irony here is that these dogs show more compassion and affection to Lazarus than the rich man does. Which is absolutely amazing. And then the the story takes a stroke of thunder. It goes a complete different direction. And things get interesting in verse 22. Look with me there. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham from far away at Lazarus' side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. The tables have turned, haven't they? And besides all this, there's a great chasm in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So here's where things get interesting. The tables are turned. Lazarus dies, doesn't have a funeral, but there's angels waiting in the wings to escort him to this place called Abraham's banquet table. Literally, Abraham's side. And the image here is is that of a feast with Abraham sitting at the head of the table and Lazarus, his honored guest, literally laying on the chest of Abraham. So Lazarus is in a good place while the rich man is buried, probably given an expensive, elaborate funeral. A lot of eulogies are probably told. But he ends up in this terrible place of agony and pain called Hades. And then the text says that the rich man looked across and saw Abraham far away, And Lazarus by his side. I want to stop here and make something very, very clear. Um, This passage is not teaching that people in hell have a split screen, real time view of heaven. Right. It's not teaching that there's kind of these long distance conversations from hell and heaven that are going to happen. That's 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 to misunderstand what a parable is. A parable is a fictional story that's to make a point. And actually, in the Middle East during this time, there's something called pearly gate stories. Pearly gate stories. And what pearly gate stories were is there are these fictitious stories about uh, the afterlife and judgment that were often political and humorous, and they were trying to make a point. It was kind of like the pearly gate stories we have now that you see in the paper. You know, three men die, and they go to heaven, and there's clouds everywhere, and they get to the pearly gates, and, and who's always standing there to greet them? Peter, exactly. Yeah, it's always St. Peter. And, you know, it's, it's not trying to tell us what the afterlife is really going to be like, but it's, it's more to tell us a different point. So Jesus here is not giving us fine, detailed points of the afterlife. He's not trying to tell us how high the thermostat is going to be set in hell. But we're not off the hook. This doesn't mean that judgment and heaven and hell aren't real. I want to make this crystal clear. Jesus, in his life, in his teaching, and the scriptures are crystal clear that there's a real place called heaven and there's a real place called hell and real people are going to end up there someday. The stakes in this life are very, very high. How we respond to the gift of God in Jesus Christ really does matter. It really does have eternal consequences, doesn't it? Sure, sometimes the way Jesus describes this is using kind of metaphorical and spiritual language, probably because we can't quite wrap our minds around the full gravity of the afterlife. But the point's the same. These are real places, and how we respond to God has real consequences. Of course, at the same time, hell is not, anybody, hell is not God's desire for any of us. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But the fact of the matter is, if people keep running away from God, 
If they keep saying no to Jesus, if they want nothing to do with God in this life, he's going to give them their wish in the afterlife. But the good news is that if we are running away from God, if we are ignoring him, if we are arm wrestling him, Jesus Christ offers us salvation now. He offers us the opportunity to know that we will be with God forever and ever today. And all we have to do to receive that is to repent of our sins and to make Jesus the Savior and Lord of our life. And if that's you today, if that's something that the Spirit is prompting you to do, if that's something you're thinking about, I would encourage you after the service to come talk to me, talk to one of the other pastors, talk to the prayer team, so that you can know today, if you died, you would be with Christ. Okay, let's go back to the text. Back in this text, there's a shocking reversal that takes place. There's a rich man who has everything that ends up with nothing. And there's a poor man who has nothing that ends up with everything. And the question is, why in the world does that happen? I mean, do all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven? Is that what Jesus is teaching? If that's the case, we're all kind of in trouble because we're filthy rich by worldly standards, aren't we? But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Instead, the point is very simple. Lazarus was pious. He was part of the people of God. During his suffering, he was silent. He was patient. He was leaning on God while the rich man is self-indulgent and self-centered. He could care less about God in the earthly life. And catch this, he could care less about God in the afterlife as well. Look again again at the text. It says when when the rich man goes to... Hades, this place of torment, what you'd expect, how pearly gate stories usually happened, is uh, this sinner repents of his sin. He begs for forgiveness. He says, you you know, especially to Lazarus, this this should be his first reaction. He should see his wayward ways, but he doesn't do that. He sees Lazarus and he doesn't even talk to him. Actually, he ignores him and he goes straight to Abraham. And essentially he says this, Abraham, I'm really suffering over here. I'm not used to this. So how about you send a water boy to fetch me something to drink? Oh, there's Lazarus. He'll do. He was a beggar in the earthly life. And now that he could walk, let's put him to work. You know, that's, that's Brandon Hovey's translation of this passage. Basically, the rich man is, is still demanding his own way. He's still acting like he's over Lazarus. And after that request is denied, he continues asking for more stuff. Now, all of a sudden, he wants Lazarus to kind of rise again and go warn his brothers. You see, he just doesn't get it because he's not part of the people of God. And his five brothers just don't get it because they're not part of the people of God, because they weren't paying attention in Sunday school class, because they didn't read their Old Testaments right. If they had, they would have known better. They would have known passages like Deuteronomy 1511, which say this. There will always be the poor in your land, so forget about them. No, it doesn't say that. So I command you to be open-handed with the poor and needy in your land. To be open-handed with the poor, even though they're always going to be there. We find the exact same thing in the New Testament as well. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14, he writes, What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, Hey, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. True faith, authentic faith, genuine faith, cares for the needs of the poor. 1 John 3, 16 through 17 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. There's the model. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, how in the world can the love of God be in him? The big idea in this passage is very, very simple. Back to our question at the beginning of the sermon. How would Jesus deal with the discrepancies of the rich and the poor? How would Jesus respond to poverty? Is it through uh, just handing it to the government? Is it through relying on rich multinational corporations to take care of the poor? Is it just telling the poor to work a little harder? No, it's not. Instead, what he offers, Jesus offers, is a personal solution. Jesus offers a personal solution to poverty. See, Christians are to see and serve the poor. And this is just a, it's, it's a very simple point, but it's also a very po- easy point to miss, I think. The entire point of this parable is that Christians see and serve the poor. You and me see and serve the people in our spheres of influence that have less than us. It's just who we are. It's just part of our identity. It's just what it means to be a Christian. First, we need to see the poor. You see, the rich man's sin is very simple. He doesn't, he doesn't kick Lazarus when he walks by. He doesn't shout cuss words from the window or, or order the police to take him away or something like that. Instead, the rich man's sin is that he accepts that this poor man is just part of the landscape. That it's perfectly natural and inevitable for Lazarus to lie there in pain and hunger while he wallowed in luxury. That's life. It's tough. And the rich man's sin in our sin is that we can look at a world of suffering and need and feel no grief or pity in our heart. See, it's a sin of omission. It's not a sin of doing the wrong things. It's a sin of not doing the right things when we have the opportunity to. I remember hearing the story about a Southern Baptist church in the Deep South about 40 years ago. And across the street from this uh, church was a homeless shelter. And there was this man named Bill that lived in the homeless shelter. And Bill was in his mid-40s. He had been homeless most of his life. And one day he decided to go to church. So he crossed the street and he went into this white, upper-class, rich, conservative Southern Baptist church. And he walked through the front doors of this church and the service had already started. And so he looked around quickly for a seat. And at this point, everybody's eyes were fixed on him. And eventually, Bill kept on walking forward until he got to the front of the church. He saw there were no more seats. So he just sat down right on the floor on the first row and looked up at the preacher. And at this, the whole congregation was just shocked. You know, the preacher stopped his sermon. Everybody was staring at this guy. What in the world is somebody going to do? When all of a sudden, an old deacon from the back of the church got up. And he slowly started walking forward to Bill. And all you could hear in the church at this time was the tap of this old man's cane on the wooden floor of the church. Until eventually this man came up to Bill, dropped his cane on the floor, sat down and put his arm around this homeless, penniless beggar and looked up at the preacher. And the preacher continued his sermon. And that, brothers and sisters, is what it means to see the poor. There's poor people in these pews right now. We had, we had a couple poor people that we met at the cool spot come last service. They're right around us, or sometimes they're right down the street from us. Sometimes they live right next to us, and our calling is to see and serve them. So my question to you is, who is the Lazarus at your gate? Who is the poor person in your sphere of influence? Maybe it's uh, a beggar in downtown Phoenix or an immigrant on the streets of downtown Chandler. Maybe it's a poor family member 
or, or a neighbor who's currently unemployed. Maybe it's somebody at the cool spot or the Navajo reservation. But if we think about it, we all have people in our life who are our Lazaruses. Who God is calling us to take care of. And I know for many of us, including myself, this is oftentimes difficult. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't feel like taking care of the poor. I think sometimes the hardest people to love are enemies and the poor people. People that our culture tells us are opposed to us and under us. But the truth of the matter is, compassion and caring for the poor isn't primarily an emotion as much as an action. It's kind of like love itself. If you're ever in a marriage relationship, you know this. Sometimes you don't feel like loving your spouse, but you do it anyway. And then after a while, you build habits into your life where you actually do feel love. It's the same thing with the poor. We serve the poor, even when we don't feel like it. And then after a while, we start feeling compassion and joy and love towards them. And it starts becoming rewarding. This is how spiritual progress works. But it's not enough just to see them. We also have to serve them. C.S. Lewis was walking in downtown London one day with a good friend. They were walking down the street, and all of a sudden, a homeless beggar came up to them and asked them for money. And C.S. Lewis's friend uh, kept walking, and, and C.S. Lewis stopped, and he emptied his wallet. And he gave this guy all of his money. And when C.S. Lewis resumed his walk with his friend, his friend looked at him and said, What are you doing giving him money like that? Don't you know he's just going to go squander it on beer? Lewis thought about it for a second, and he said, That's exactly what I was going to do with it. You know, I mean, we think about it, we're we're really quick to justify not caring for the poor. We're really quick to criticize the poor, even when we live in luxury ourselves. You see, our job is to be like Jesus. It's to see and care for the poor. It's to give them what we have. It's to give with our time and our money. It's to give with our hospitality and our love. And that's God's call in all of our lives Um, The cool spot, the ministry that we launched uh, last Monday, I was looking for three or four people to come to downtown Chandler to hang out with the homeless. We had 13 from our church. And I think we have a picture of the food that we donated here. This is just some of it. There was two gratefuls back there, and there's another one today. We're doing a good job. We're moving in the right direction with this. Just the other day, Terry Hill called me on the phone and asked if we could do a ministry for uh, kids in Chandler that don't have backpacks and school supplies. So next week, we're going to launch a drive for backpack and school supplies for a thousand kids in Chandler. We're, we're teaming up with some other churches. But there's exciting things happening. Here, too, is uh, Tomas. He's somebody that we met um, at the Cool Spot last week. And uh, this picture was actually in the Arizona Republic. They, they wrote an article on us. So exciting things are happening. But my question to you this morning, what I want to leave you with is very simple. Ask yourself, who is the Lazarus at your gate and how can you serve him? I encourage you to write that name on the back of your sermon bulletin and to pray for them over the course of the next few weeks. Somebody who's been doing that, somebody who has been noticing the Lazarus at his gate is Scott Tonkinson. And I've invited him to come up here this morning to share with us his experience with seeing and caring for uh, the poor. So Scott's going to share a short testimony with us and kind of put some feet on this. Hi, guys. It's been a while since I've been up here. <laughs> Hope you're all doing great. Um, this is something near and dear to my heart. Uh, two years ago, almost more than two and a half now, uh, Carol Greenlaw came over to me, and uh, I had Carol doing some dramas up on the stage with me. And she said, hey, let's, let's go do the Christmas dinner down at uh, Jacob's Journey House. I said, all right, I'll, I'll do my 
my checklist thing, and I know how some of us get that way. I was where, yeah, it's time for Christmas. There's people in need. We need to help them out. So went down and, and fed the folks at Jacob's Journey, and it was it was an okay experience. It was meeting some folks I didn't know. I knew it was only going to be there for about half an hour, an hour, and then, then head on back. Um, then the next week, Carol came up to me and said, listen, I'm going to lead a Bible study down there. I want you to come. And I felt obligated because she had helped me with some dramas and things like that. And I said, sure. So I went down and um, started meeting with these guys once a week. And I, I can't tell you the amazing thing that God did in my heart, let alone theirs. Um, to be homeless is not what you probably think it is. It's not the guy. They are included, but the guy on the street, you know, with flying the sign. It's I met doctors, <laughs> medical professionals that did not have a home. I've met mothers and children. I've seen families, complete families, without homes. And in just in the last two years, what I want to encourage you is um, the story of Lazarus and the rich man at being a parable. Um, Christ was very intent on our need to help other people. And for me personally, um, and whether you know it or not, right now there are several people who uh, are in this room who have been homeless or right now I know several that are homeless. And so they're sitting amongst you and you shook hands with them this morning. So it's one of those things that once you get to know somebody, all of that goes away. And this was the first time in my life in a long time that I got to sit with some folks and talk with them and just be with them. And they didn't care who I was, what kind of money I made, uh, what my job title was. They just enjoyed having somebody to talk to. And I, I agree with Brandon 100% that it becomes an action, compassion, where I started going down and meeting with these folks, and now I have several friends that I've been able to help wherever my means are, but they've helped me. I've gotten church. When you hear somebody talk about how they hung on to God's word and the promise right there in that scripture so that they would have a meal the next day, so that their kids would be able to go to school in the, in the fall, it, it's, it's a whole different thing when they claim God's word on that. And sometimes we kind of brush through the word. So uh, I want to encourage you um, I, in the story, they didn't put 20 or 30 Lazaruses at the gate. I think Christ did that intentionally in his parable. They put one. One man laying at the gate who could not do anything but lay there. And the rich man forgets him, walks right by, doesn't even see him. So I want to encourage you that there are Lazaruses out there, and they probably don't look like you think they look. So when you have the opportunity to open your eyes and say, God, who around me can I help? And show me some steps. I mean... Everybody has a different walk with, with working with folks, but there are so many people out there in need of just being talked to and encouraged. I'm working with a gentleman right now, and I'll close this up really quick. Um, first of all, God's changed my life. I'm literally changing my career due to the love that he's shown me and compassion and helping others um, and some other things like that. And, and for me, that's wonderful. I know everybody has their own walk. But how you can do things to help folks is just be aware of what's out there and what needs to be done. I've got a gentleman I'm working with right now who is ready to go to work. He's ready. He's excited. He's got shelter over his head. He's ready to do his thing, and he needs a bicycle because he's going to ride wherever he needs to go to work. So I'm going to put it out there to you guys as I did the first service. If you know if anybody's got a bike sitting in their garage, 
They're not using? Let me know. That's one way you can put your compassion into action and help out. But find me after the service for that. I just want to encourage you, be on the lookout for your Lazarus and find out. uh, Because the more you do it, the more you love doing it, and then you get to a point where you cannot not do it. And I think that's where Jesus is. He's outside of the box. He's way out there. So get out of your comfort zone a little bit and see what God has in store for you. Thanks. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would break our hearts for the things that break yours. I pray that we would be men, women, boys and girls who see and serve the poor. Who are compassionate and kind and loving to those around us, Father, even when we don't feel like it. And I pray that um, through your Holy Spirit that you would show us how we can respond to the poverty around us, Father. It's not going to look the same for all of us. It's going to be different. It takes creativity. It takes open eyes and open hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would show us what it means to see and serve the poor in Chandler and around the world. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.